It's an interesting day in which we live. Last uh, Sunday, uh, Bonnie and I worshipped with you in the Safeway parking lot down in uh, uh, St. Helens, Oregon, as uh, we watched the service from there um, uh, on my phone and uh, enjoyed hearing the message and the preaching of the word brought by Mr. Brillhart. It's a, an extraordinary time. We're thankful for those privileges and advantages that we can have. Many years ago, I was uh, paddling in a canoe on the Kunjamuk River in New York State. And it was a calm and warm and sunny summer day. The river was narrow and it meandered through woods and grasslands. And we had entered the river off of a large lake, and as the day wound down, we started back towards the mouth of the river and back to the lake. And suddenly, really suddenly, with no warning, a brutal thunderstorm broke out over us. Pelting, stinging rain whipped by violent winds lowered visibility to just a few feet. When we managed to get uh, our canoes to the end of the river, <clears throat> we discovered that this placid lake uh, that was usually still and quite easy to maneuver on had been turned into a roiling cauldron of seething water and canoe-swamping waves. There was really nothing to do. The wind was so strong that it was impossible to paddle the canoe against it and it was necessary to jump out of the canoe and walk it along the shoreline and back to the dock. We were fighting rain and hail and waves and wind, trying to keep the canoes upright and the passengers in them who were with us safe and dry. We had perhaps four or five canoes, and by the time we had all made our way back to the dock and got everyone ashore, just as suddenly as the storm had appeared, it melted away. And the lake sparkled and glistened in the late afternoon sunshine, uh, calmed quickly back to its mirror-like stillness, and the evening went on quite quietly. I think we all have some idea of what the word suddenly means, or what it refers to in general terms. A little research, however, reveals some facts about this word that I think are worth taking note of. It's a common word, suddenly. We all know that the internet is a wealth of information of questionable reality or reliability, but in matters like word definitions and usage and so on, it, it can be counted on to a certain extent. And one of the interesting things about this word in its English form it's that it's been used more since the turn of this century in published works of all sorts than it has since 1800. In fact, after a peak in the 1860s during the war between the states, it dropped dramatically in usage, hardly being used at all in the early 1980s. But beginning in the year 2000, it makes an abrupt upward turn. And the use of the word suddenly, well, 
it suddenly exploded. And it's used today more than ever. And its appearance in print is becoming more frequent every year. I would say that by a rough estimate and on average, that it's being used twice as much today as it has ever been used in its uh, number of usages per millions of English words written. Now, why is that? I can't tell you. I don't know why that's the case. But I thought it was extraordinary to see how it's just on this uh, upward incline uh, dramatically since it's first being used in print. Now, for you and me, the word has no particular context or connotation. By that I mean you can be happily, you can be frighteningly, you can be pleasantly, or you can be sadly, suddenly surprised. Any one of those things will work, right? Sometimes it's a pleasant surprise and comes on you very suddenly and you're thankful for that sudden surprise. Other times it's the kind of sudden surprise you don't like, like a blowout on the interstate or something of that nature. You can become suddenly ill, but you can also become suddenly well. You can be suddenly knocked over or tripped, and you can be suddenly picked up or caught and kept from falling. The emphasis of the word suddenly in that context is the surprising swiftness of the matter rather than the nature of it. Now, with all that being said, when it comes to the Hebrew word that we find here in Malachi chapter 3, when it says that the messenger whom you seek will suddenly appear, the word that's translated into English, into the English word suddenly for us there, the Hebrew word, the story is quite different. The Hebrew word has a negative connotation, a negative connotation that conveys shock, distress, surprise, danger. And it's all except for one usage in the, in the Bible associated with something unpleasant. And even there, it could be an unpleasant experience. It first appears in numbers in connection with sudden death. It's used in Joshua to express the lightning quick and surprising attack of an ambush when it comes. And it appears in the same vein in Psalm 64 in verses 2 through 4. There we read, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. And there you see it used in, in that surprising negative context. In Proverbs, it's used to describe the abrupt end of the wicked in their plans and purposes. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers. With perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. 
Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. You see it there again in a negative context, in that it is the surprise of the failure of the plans and the purposes of the wicked. In Ecclesiastes, it's used to describe the way trouble in general falls out. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. And then verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at in an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. So here it is in the context of being trapped or being caught in an evil net, as it's described. And here's one final example that clearly puts the the use of the word in context for you. It's referring to the fall of Babylon. And it's in Isaiah 47 and verse 11. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. So it's the sudden ruin of which there's no anticipation or no expectation. Now the Hebrew word used in these texts is meant to convey an unexpected shock and awe, a frightening and ruinous appearance. It's designed to bring discomfort and terror to the complacent and the self-confident, especially those who are self-confident in their sinfulness. Which brings us to the text that Mr. Brillhart began unfolding last week when he made a clear distinction for you all between justice and fairness and the confusion that reigns in so many minds over the two. So turn your attention to that text now, and I'll try not to trip over anything as you do, and let's just look at the text here. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. And that's that word there that talks about suddenly being caught in a trap or, or suddenly being ruined. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when you look at the opening of this passage, opening of Malachi chapter 3, the first thing to note here is that Jehovah God is calling on you to look at him. This call to behold could be translated, look on or watch me. I am sending my messenger. That's the force behind that call to behold. Look at me. Look here. Watch me. Watch what I am doing. So many today 
have their eyes fixed on the world and everything that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Never before have the eyes of men and women and children been called on to look at so much, so quickly, so often, in such a far-flung way, even to the ends of the earth. Bonnie and I spent some time the other night watching on a live stream animals drinking at a water hole in southwestern Africa in the desert. And it was a live stream of these animals drinking there. Uh, it's uh, something that was impossible not all that long ago. But it's commonplace today. And our eyes are being called to look at all sorts of things constantly and quickly. But here, the Lord is saying, look at me. This is the creator. This is the provider. This is the savior of mankind saying, fix your eyes on me and see what I am doing. Watch what I am doing. Watch what I am doing. Watch what I have done, actually. And what is it he asks you to behold him doing here? It is the sending of his messenger, the messenger of the covenant. He's saying, watch me as I thrust my messenger into your world, as I dispatch my deputy to you. Watch me do this. Fix your eyes on me doing this. Now, it's important that we see that as a response to the question that appears in the end of chapter 2. You'll recall, as Mr. Brillhart pointed out, the people of Malachi's day had wearied the Lord with their demands. And back in chapter 2, you see them saying there in verse 17, the Lord says first, you've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? This is the answer to that question, where is the God of just justice? This is, as he pointed out, the answer to that complaint. Where is he? Watch me. I'm sending him. You want to know where he is? Watch me. Fix your eyes on me. And you will see that I am sending him. The first words of this chapter seem a direct answer to the profane, atheistic demand of the scoffers of those days, which closed the foregoing chapter, or that is chapter 2. Where is the God of judgment? To which it is really or readily answered, Here he is. He is just at the door. The long-expected Messiah is ready to appear, says Matthew Henry. And beloved, the truth of the matter is that he is far more ready to appear than they ever were to receive him. Their complaint was, where is the justice? Where, where is this? And the Lord says, look at me, he's here. And they were far more ready to complain about his absence than they were to receive him when he came. Far more ready, I think we could say simply, 
to come and to bring justice to bear than they were for him to come and bring justice to bear. And I think that the truth is, beloved, the same thing is true today. He is far more ready to appear again than most people are ready to receive him. Now, as we look at what's said here by Malachi, it's important for us to remember that the word of God is weighty and powerful. It's so full and effervescent. And effervescent is a word maybe you children don't hear too much, but it's, you know when you shake a soda and then you open it and it bubbles up and that, that's because of the effervescence in the soda, the, 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 the bubbles, let's put it that way, that are in there that are ready to explode. And the word of God is like that. It is full and effervescent. And it is so full and it's so powerful that at times it's just overwhelming in its truth and its testimony. And I want to testify to you this morning that that is true of this passage. And I pray that God the Holy Spirit will convey this to your minds and hearts because I can't do it. It's not in the power of men to do this. But the word of God, beloved, is here is so deep and so profound that I am at a loss to try and place before you the whole significance of what is being said here and its implications and couldn't possibly do it in the time that we have together. The way it is, you look at this passage and you select a thread of its teaching and you begin to follow that thread and suddenly you see it leads you to ten more threads. And you pick one of those and you start to follow that and then you find that comes to ten more threads. And it just goes deeper and deeper. And it's beyond the ability of our minds to, to comprehend it in its fullness at once. We are in many respects before the word of God like children playing a video game and absorbed by the screen in, in front of you with no concept of the capital and investment, the research and the testing, the electronic sophistication of the hardware, the complexity of the software, the manufacturing process, the shipping orders of parts and pieces, or any of the work that went into offering it for sale. When the child's sitting there in front of that screen and playing that game, they have no concept of all those things. But all those things are a part of them being able to sit there and play that game. This testimony that's before you is here before you, and you can see it. But the complexity of all that's involved in all that is intended here is just beyond our comprehension, and it's hard for us to see. The gospel, as Paul says in Ephesians, is the revelation of the mystery of his will, the mystery of God's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. 
<clears throat> just take it that way. This is a part of the revelation of the mystery of the will of the omniscient, omnipotent God. And it's the revelation of that according to his purpose. And it is his part of his plan for all time. Now here we are with our finite minds trying to comprehend that. Trying to wrap our, our minds around this. The mystery that God has revealed that is set forth in Christ, which is according to his purpose and a plan for all time. It's a part of this wonderful plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And what are we? Standing before such profound things but children. We're trying to deal with timeless things, but we're doing it in the context of time. And if that time stretched too far, it will weary us, it will tempt us to be distracted or bored or impatient. And yet what you're being asked to do is to consider things that are timeless in their nature. There are just three things here to try to get something we can get a hold of rather than trying to deal with the whole of this. I'd just like to give you three things to take note of here that the Lord may be pleased to, to bless to your hearts today. The first we've already touched on, and that is beholding what God is doing. The second is the implied warning. The Lord says that the messenger of the covenant will appear suddenly, and that word is a word of warning. And the third is the peace that comes from being able to look on the messenger of the covenant as the one in whom you delight. Well, first of all, beholding. What is set before here by the uh, before us by the Lord is a challenge. The behold implies in this context a real challenge of sorts. The Lord's own were challenging him in a sense, and his response was a clear counter challenge. You say, where is the God of justice? Well, watch me. Watch me and see if I will not bring justice to bear. You challenge me by saying, where am I? Fix your eyes on me. Really fix your eyes on me and see if I will not bring justice to bear. God would have his children by faith live by faith. A faith, beloved, that is so clear and so strong that it can see and believe God is acting just as he promises. And that with him, the things that are yet to come for us are accomplished and done. Can you fix your eyes on God like that this morning? He said, God has given you promises. But when he speaks of those promises, he speaks of them as things already accomplished. And can you look on him in that way in faith? 
and say, though you haven't seen the thing accomplished, because God has promised it, in his perspective, in the everlasting present, it's as though it were already done. Remember what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And when you look on God, your God, do you see him in that spirit and in that context? Do you have assurance of hope? Because he said, so it will be. So it will be. Think of it this way. In the context of this passage, John the forerunner, who's referred to at the beginning of Malachi chapter 3 here, will be born centuries after Malachi lived. But do you see the way the Lord speaks of it here? Fix your eyes on me, I'm sending him. He is sent. Well, wait a minute, centuries before he's coming. But the Lord refers to it as though it is done. It's a thing done. You're wondering, will it happen? It's happened. The Lord speaks here of it as if it were if he was doing it as he spoke of it. As a present act. Behold, I send my messenger. And then after that, the one whom you delight in will suddenly appear too. Because I'm, I'm sending him too. It's a challenge to see God as he is. The Lord is inviting those who are his to see him as he is sovereign and omnipotent, dwelling in the eternal present. And can you see him in that light today? Is this the God you're worshiping? Not the one who we're looking down the corridors of time and hope he'll be able to accomplish everything he said he's going to do. But the one who has already accomplished everything he has promised. That's the God we worship. That's the God we serve. We, from our perspective, are waiting for it all to unfold from his place as the living God. It's done. You think of a parade. You're standing still and the parade marches past you. We get aggravated watching parades on, on TV because the band's playing, 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 and then they get to where we'll get to hear them and the band stops playing and the drums all the way past us and then when they get down where we can't hear them anymore, they pick up their instruments and start playing again. And what we want to hear is them playing. We don't want to just see them marching the drum as it goes by. But this is where our place is, in the parade, by the camera. That parade begins long before it gets to your spot. And it's going to continue on way past where you are standing. You and your generation, beloved, are watching the parade of God's justice, as it were. The work began long before your little time on the earth. And it will march on until it's done. Perhaps long after your little spot on the route. Back down there, way down there, 
Jesus came and died for your sins. Up there, somewhere, he will return in power and great glory, bringing justice and judgment to bear. And right here, right now, in front of you and me, he is passing by to that end. Some of you may live to see it. Many of us may not. But it's already going. It's going by. We're just happen to be standing here and seeing this. But the parade is complete. The Lord says here, look at me. Not just in the moment of your life. Look at me as my will and providence pass by you. But look at me. In Isaiah 40, verse 38, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That's the Lord we worship. And here we find one of those threads that splits into a dozen others and that we can't follow at present. Just know that this accomplished design and purpose of God regarding justice and its completion from his perspective is the key to your eternal blessing and it's also the key to the eternal judgment of the lost. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 26, it says, There's none like God, O Jezurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. Let's just bring it down to a single thread here. Because we only have time to consider that. He is preparing, beloved. He has already prepared this world for judgment. It's already prepared for judgment. That, beloved, is what this is all about. What you read here in Malachi chapter 3. Watch him. He sends his messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. And then he sends the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant. Jesus, as the messenger of the covenant, serves his Father's will and redeems us with his own blood. Becomes the death of death by his resurrection. And ascends into the heavens from which he will return. All of that is for bringing his justice and judgment to bear. All of that is for that purpose. All of that is for that design. All of that is a part of the story. Five times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says the judgment has been committed into his hands by the Father. John 5, verse 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. John 9, 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, 
and those who see may become blind. Now, there are other references there in John, but I want you to see this last one. What was the complaint of the people at the end of chapter 2? Where is the God of justice? What is God's answer? Look at me. I have sent, or I am sending my messenger. And he is coming to be the judge. And he will judge. Justice is already afoot. Justice is already here. This is a world preparing, ripening for judgment. But it is already ripe in the eyes of God. So first you have that look at me, beholding God. The other two points are shorter. The next one is suddenly. Remember, this is a warning. Going back to what he said at the beginning, uh, well, I said at the beginning of the sermon, this doesn't imply a happy or a pleasant event, but a startling and a disarming one, especially as it applies to the Messiah's first coming. And it's not hard to see how it proved to be just that, wasn't it? It was unexpected, and then it was unwanted by many. Why? Why did this suddenly come on them and, and, and disturb them? Why did they not want Jesus? Why did they not want that messenger to come? Because it judged them. Because he, by his presence among them, judged them. By his perfect life and his perfect living, he judged them. By the way they tried to entrap him and he picked apart their efforts to do so. By their ultimate rejection of the Messiah, it judged them. When the leaders of the people stood up and said, we have no king but Caesar. They judged, they condemned themselves by those words. That's what they did. Justice was afoot. Justice was being brought to bear. As Mr. Brillhart pointed out last week, people think they want Jesus to return. They want God to bring justice into the world, but not really. Not really. Because this is a justice that no one can abide. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3? The first part of it's very familiar. In verse 16, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But he didn't stop there. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned. Where is the God of justice? Where is he? I'm here. And I've already, I'm already bringing justice to bear. And one of the ways I'm doing it is I've set my messenger in your midst. And if you reject him, you're condemned already. He is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light 
because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And by this, beloved, you can see how judgment is already underway. Each generation takes its place along the route. And it either by grace looks on eternal just work or it rejects, it despises, it mocks or ignores it. Overlooking this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, Peter says, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come suddenly. The word suddenly is not there. But like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Not soon, now the Lord is dispensing justice. And the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will come with the same suddenness the second time as it did the first time. There's a temptation to say that it's, the day, that it's in the day of judgment uh, that, that the Lord's going to come suddenly. And there's a sense, I guess, in which that's true. But in the context of what we're taught here, this is already suddenly. The suddenness is already here. This is already the day of judgment. We're not sitting around waiting, well, somewhere along the line here, and uh, there's going to be a great day of judgment. This is the day of judgment. If you believe, you are not condemned. If you do not believe, you are condemned already. This is the day of judgment. It's here, beloved. It's now. And by what authority do I say that? Am I just trying to play off of these words? It seemed a simple thing. Some Greek proselytes had approached Philip and they asked to see the Savior. And Philip told Andrew of their request. And we read this. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus, this is in John chapter 12, answered them, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, referring to himself. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thunders, thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd had a response to that, but Jesus had already said what needed to be heard. Now is the day of judgment. And that brings us to the final point, delight. He just described here as the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Judgment rests on whether one delights in Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant, or rejects him. You either receive him with joy and desire, or you don't. And if you don't, you're in danger because you're condemned already. Jesus and his testimony is described here in Malachi like fuller's soap or refiner's fire. That fire will purify the sons and the daughters and consume the lost in the everlasting fires of judgment. Just reflect on delight for a moment as we wind down. Many of you have had to take or take or you're taking regularly medicine that you would rather not take. Many of you have had that experience. You take it, but you don't like it. But you do it because in the long run, you know it's necessary. And you take it and you're perhaps reluctant to do it, but you do it gladly because you need to. You don't delight in that medicine when you take it. Because delight, as it's used here, involves not only joy and thankfulness, but desire. I want him. And that's what is involved here. David spoke this way of his love for the Lord. He said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. In Psalm 16, verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Paul spoke of it in the same way in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's my desire. Christ is my desire. Paraphrasing the apostles' words, Samuel Rutherford says this, When once I began to know Christ, since whence I got a sight of that lovely Savior, Christ, then all these things, and he's talking about all the things he counted as rubbish, whereof I thought so highly before, and that they were my gain, I thought but basely of them, and counted them but loss. From that time they had no place or room in my account book, but I cast all of them away, having once fallen in love with Christ. Those to whom Jesus is not just a means to an end, but who truly delight in him, those are the ones he has purified and has prepared for judgment. Those of you who are not just looking to Jesus as a means to an end. I don't want to go to hell, so I've got to go to Christ. It's those who look and say, this is my Redeemer. 
This is my Savior. This is my God. I love him as the one who loves me. I love him because he first loved me. I love him because he made me and gave me life. I love him because he's the one who sustains me all day long. I love him because he's near to me and he's dear to me. I love him. I desire him. I want him. I'm not just receiving him because I must. I want him because he is my redeemer. But what of those who are outside of the justice meted out upon Christ for sinners? Beloved, the day of judgment is here, and you should not think of it as something yet to come. After you leave this world or at some great appointed time in the future. For you and for all of us, it's now. God has graciously delivered his only begotten son into the jaws of his own divine and holy justice on the behalf of sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like you, beloved. It was an act of unimaginable selfless love that is freely offered. There is nothing in the Redeemer worthy of your despite or rejection. But on the contrary, there is every reason to delight in him. He cries with truth and compassion. Jesus stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In Isaiah 55, it says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The great and godly Samuel Rutherford that I referred to earlier said that when words like these are heard by a dying heart, it is as if God was thrusting down a hot iron to brand you on that heart as his own. And he said, when you hear that, reach up, he says, and grab that iron and thrust it deep into your soul. Have that desire. There he is with it. I've come to redeem you. And your response needs to be, redeem me, redeem me. I desire none but you. All of this is ensconced in this promise here. Rutherford says, thrust his stamp and his burning iron even down to the bone, that there may be great letters left behind, and all your life after you may bear Christ's mark. Behold God as he is, beloved. Fix your eyes on him. He is at work. Consider the nature of this word. What is being set before you? Don't close your eyes to the suddenness of events. And if you have not delighted in the Savior, reach up. Thrust that iron, that truth into your own heart and let it burn there. Find that life which is in Christ Jesus. Because this is the day of judgment right now. For all who hear the gospel, you stand before the Lord in the day of judgment. And now is the day to find that peace and satisfaction which can only be found 
in Christ. Let's pray. Father, before such profound things, it's so hard to have a sense of ever having done an adequate job. I pray, Lord, that I, in trying to do so this morning, have not stood between anybody and you. I pray, Lord, that if there's any soul here to which your word is standing over them and they hear it and they understand that this is the day of judgment and they must know Christ and they must know him as their Savior. That, Lord, even now they'll reach up and pull that iron to themselves, pull that word to themselves and find that forgiveness and that peace which passes understanding. And Father, may we who are yours humbly acknowledge our place on the route, on the parade of your justice. Give thanks that you have allowed us to see Christ as the messenger of the covenant Rejoice in our peace and give thanks for all that is ours in him. Lord, bless your word to the hearts and minds of all. For Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Amen.